0: Hello, this is your host, Eric Fleming, and before I get to the podcast, I want to make this special appeal. Jackson, Mississippi was my home for 34 years. My son was born there, and I have family and friends that live there. Now they, along with 150,000 other residents of the city with soul, are in a crisis that was years in the making. On August 29th, the citizens of the largest city in Mississippi lost their access to the municipal water system. A city that is 83% black has lost access to safe drinking water. A city in which one out of four citizens live below poverty has lost access to safe drinking water. They need our help. The Mississippi Rapid Response Coalition is asking you, your friends, and neighbors to give to help them reach their goal of $2 million. Funds raised will be used to purchase water, transport water to households, purchase reusable water containers, storage space for water filters, essentials, and other items needed during what is expected to be at least a year without safe water. Go to peoplesadvocacyinstitute.com to find out more how you can help. That's peoplesadvocacyinstitute.com. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to another Moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. I want to start off today with a quote. I believe America is at an inflection point, one of those moments that determine the shape of everything that's to come after. Now America must choose to move forward, Or to move backwards to build the future or obsessed about the past to be a nation of hope and unity and optimism or a nation of fear division and of darkness MAGA republicans have made their choice they embrace anger they thrive on chaos they live not in the light of truth but in the shadow of lies But together, together we can choose a different path. We can choose a better path forward to the future, a future of possibility, a future to build and dream and hope. So on September the 1st, the President of the United States stood in front of Independence Hall in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania and gave a speech to the nation. That quote comes from that speech. It is apparent to me that we have reached an incredible moment American history where a U.S. president feels that he has to tell the nation to stop being divided. We've had moments like that before. We have act- had actions by presidents before and the backlash has been brutal. When John F. Kennedy spoke to the nation in June of 1963 to talk about the importance of civil rights for African Americans, the immediate backlash literally was the assassination of Megar Evers, the field secretary for the NAACP in Mississippi. In 1968, the Fair Housing Act was passed by Lyndon Baines Johnson to end redlining as America knew it at that time. And for those who don't quite know. Redlining was the practice not only by local realtors, but by the federal government itself to designate areas that were quote unquote livable. If you lived in a red area, it was labeled hazardous. Guess where black people lived? And this just wasn't in the South. This was in every major U.S. city. There were maps. Literally after, weeks after, the Fair Housing Act was passed, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. Fortunately for us, after the president has given a speech, we have not had anything as significant as assassinations yet. But I would dare to say that the propensity for violence is greater now than it was in the 1960s. Just imagine in the 1960s, we had social media. Just imagine, in the 1960s, we had Fox, OAN, and Newsmax. Just imagine. We live in a time where people, who have clearly stated that no matter what, they want America to be the way they want it. They want an America that subjugates everybody but them. And they have proven on January 6th, 2021, that they will do any and everything to make sure that happens. We literally had a president of the United States encourage that. Now, it's one thing to have a president of the United States watch a racist film in the White House and say the Ku Klux Klan were heroes. It's another thing to empower them with the promise of pardons and financial support. We live in a time that if people are not serious about the threat that is out there, they will be quickly overrun. We watch movies like The Purge and think, well, that's fantasy. That'll never happen. We'll read books like Animal Farm in 1984 and say, well, that's fiction. That will never happen. Another movie, V for Vendetta. But history has told us all around the globe that when authoritarians are given just six inches of daylight, they can cause chaos. We have people who are concerned about a civil war. And a civil war was a battle about economics. Slavery was the biggest industry in the world, and it was strictly, well, I won't say strictly American, but we had the biggest to lose, Well, when I say we, the American economy had the biggest to lose, especially in the South. Slavery was abolished. So it was a way of life and a way of lifestyle for certain folks. When you look at the fact that Mississippi, which ironically now is in a situation where the largest city doesn't have running water. And a quarter of its population lives below poverty. And the state itself is the poorest in the nation. During slavery, Mississippi had more millionaires per square mile than any other place in the United States. So it was no surprise, other than the fact that they should have been first, that Mississippi was the second state to secede from the Union to defend the institution of slavery. The northern states had a faction of people called abolitionists who wanted to end the practice and said it was inhumane and unchristian. But the economics outside of maybe New York City or Boston dictated that we need that labor force to continue the industrial revolution. And with 4 million plus able bodies in one region of the country, the Northern region felt that they needed to tap into that workforce. And so for a decade, the politics was volatile and hostile and vicious. But the worst incident that happened at the Capitol building was a senator from South Carolina. He may have been a representative, but he was in the Senate chamber. And he used a cane and beat up a senator from Massachusetts. It was the most violent act that took place at the U.S. Capitol prior to civil war it wasn't thousands of people coming it was one congress member attacking another that was the worst it got and so a war was fought for 5 years basically to determine who would have economic control of the nation. Would it be the Confederates or would it be the United States? The United States of America won. Abraham Lincoln was labeled a great hero because of his leadership during that time. Of course, after the war, he was assassinated. So we fast forward now to today. This is more than just economics. This is about authoritarian rule through white supremacy. The closest correlation to what I'm talking about is the 1930s in Europe where we saw people like Franco in Spain, Mussolini in Italy, and Hitler in Germany amassing power, manipulating the masses. controlling the government, devaluing the press. And those guys, because of their efforts, created what we call a world war. World War One had happened literally 15 years prior to the ascent of those gentlemen, or at least Mussolini and Hitler for sure. And that was supposed to be the war to end all wars, World War One. It redefined the map of Europe. It established the United States as a military force, not necessarily as a superpower, but as a force to deal with. And of course, we got in two years after Woodrow Wilson, the aforementioned president that loved the movie Birth of the Nation so much that he declared the Klan heroes. made that statement two years after we were in world war one and black men who woodrow wilson felt needed to be controlled for their sexual prowess and everything else fought on behalf of the united states of america needless to say when they came back they were not treated as heroes, at least not in the white community. They were perceived as threats. And from 1919 to 1921, we saw some of the most incredible violence, racial violence, that this country had seen. So I posed this question to a friend of mine. Well, I say a friend of somebody I'm connected to on social media. Just imagine if social media existed prior to the Civil War or even in the 1930s, let alone what I had already mentioned about the 60s. how bad could have gotten. Well, I can tell you how bad it could have gotten because it's happening right now. And there are people that are going to be offended by that, and so be it. Because I'm offended that you think that your thought process is cool, that you think that subjugating me and people that look like me and other people of color and indigenous people is okay so that you can live your life somebody recently pointed out that black people are capable of being prejudiced but when you define racism that's all we got to practice racism you have to have the prejudice you have to have the social power and you have to have the financial resources to make that happen black people do not have the social power or the financial resources to quote unquote flip the script or as a lot of hurt people say Reverse racism. We don't have that power, not even in cities that we run politically. Biggest criticism I hear from Black people on the left is that we're too nice those of us who have been given the opportunity to serve in public office, those of us who have been given the opportunity to lead are too collegial or forgiving. And we try to govern in a way in which it should be governed rather than a way that is quote unquote fair. Because in their mind, fair means since we're in charge, we can oppress them. That's not how that works. In order to show an equitable government, in order to show a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, you can't lead with revenge. We can't lead with anger we have to lead with compassion and tolerance and innovation and vision we saw that well not me personally but this country saw what that looked like during reconstruction and you have heard me mention it prior podcast but as always worth repeating. 2,000 African Americans were elected to state legislatures in the South. Some even got to go to the United States Congress in both houses. It was those men who came up with the idea that public education should be for everybody, every citizen. It was those men who rebuilt the South. People want to give credit to white folks like Grady and others. If you're from Atlanta, you know what I'm talking about. But it was those black men in those state houses that created the policies and the laws for the South not only to rebuild, but to be reacclimated into the Union. Now, of course, they had some military backup. Some of them actually led military units. Nonetheless, progress was being made. People that were casualties of war and people who had been treated as commodities prior to a war were starting to get a value. They were starting to live in an America that we have always always envisioned. But there were white people who were not cool with that. And so they started groups like the Rednecks, the Insurrectionists, and the Ku Klux Klan, who through terrorist acts and literal insurrections did everything possible to dismantle that progress. They had allies in the Capitol building, undercutting and underfunding the Freedmen's Bureau which at that time was not a standalone agency. It was under the Department of War. And he did everything they could to not fund the Department of War, just so that Black men and women who were enslaved could not get a hand up from the government that sanctioned their slavery. I know there are people who are offended by, and I, yeah, I said it again, by being reminded of our history to the extent that they are using the levers of power to literally shut that down, to outlaw it. And My question to them is, How would you feel if you lived in a country where they told you, especially you evangelical Christians, that you couldn't go to church because of your political activity, because of your propensity for violence, for your meddling, in the political affairs for fear that you may inspire others in the faith to do so. Well, that actually happened in the United States. That happened to enslaved Black people, especially in the state of South Carolina. There were states that forbade forbade you to read or right, but in South Carolina, because most of the organizers of slave revolts or proposed slave revolts were identified as ministers of the gospel, they actually passed a law that said that black people could not go to church or publicly worship. Hence the significance of the attack on Mother Emmanuel in Charleston. I think the dude even referenced that, who perpetuated the attack. We have a group of young people who generation young people who seem to be getting it and understanding that the world in which we live in is diverse and it has not been fair to everybody. And as they enter adulthood, they want to live in a world that is more fair, that it is more equitable, which is why the forces of darkness, these people that the president alluded to are waging an all out war to make sure that that mindset doesn't exist. They want to blame liberal arts colleges for that equality, equity mindset. They want to blame music. They want to blame culture in general, cultural influences. They want to blame people because of who they want to love. They want to blame everybody who doesn't have that Archie Bunker mentality that they want to continue to regurgitate and slam down our throats. And because they have capital politically and they have capital financially they have latitude and leverage to do it. Hell, they elected a president of their choosing for four years and are doing everything possible to make sure that, that person is able to run and win again. And because a lot of those folks are lined up in one political party, it makes it, it minimizes the argument. It makes it seem as though that is a partisan debate rather than a philosophical or crisis situation. So on the other side, let's talk about that. And so we're back. So, you know, one of the things that we've been talking about, voices being raised and actions being taken, one of the ways that you really can also control people, subjugate people, is to neglect them. And so when we look at the history of the United States, when we look at the aspects of how people make these arguments that America is not racist, that white supremacy is a thing of the past, and yada, yada, yada. People that apologize for oppression, in my opinion. He just got to look at factors that make oppression successful. One is public policy laws, right? Ever since the Black Codes that Virginia established in the 1600s, there has been a talent, a proficiency, a propensity throughout the history of this country, and yes, even before the country became official, to create laws to relegate Black people and their activities. And then, of course, there's terror and violence. If you haven't watched it on Netflix, I need you to watch my former colleague, Jeffrey Robinson. Jeffrey uh, was with the I know I don't I don't know if he's still there or not, but when I was there, he was over uh, the racial justice project at the ACLU, and he's done this piece on. Who It's a documentary, Who We Are. It was filmed for a lecture he did, and then, of course, they've updated it to include what happened after he gave the lecture. And in it, he talks about different things. And one thing he points out and this gets to the point about force, is he puts up a screen of a slave patrol badge and it looks like a modern six-point sheriff's badge, right? And he makes the case that the reason why there's animosity with the black community and law enforcement is because instilled in our DNA, he makes the case that modern law enforcement is an evolution of the slave patrols. And if you listen to KRS-One or a lot of other rappers, they come to the same conclusion or Mm -hmm. espouse the same fact. And having been in law enforcement, I can tell you that not every law enforcement officer buys into that philosophy. I would dare say the majority do not. But when you look at the history of the United States, it's hard not to see why there's always been conflict with law enforcement in the black community especially when you had regions of the country, primarily in the South and to some degree in the West, because in the North, what they tried to do to alleviate that tension, especially after race riots, or in some cases before, you had Black officers, if they allowed Blacks to be officers, they patrolled the black neighborhoods and the white officers patrol the white neighborhoods. And there was an understanding that if a black man committed a crime in the white neighborhood, the white officers had total compunction leeway to do whatever they wanted to do to that suspect. But a black officer could not do that to a white suspect in a black area. They literally had to be turned over to a white precinct. But even more so than that, there was in those regions I mentioned, law enforcement participated in some of the terroristic acts and actually helped other people who weren't law enforcement who were members of the White Citizens Council or the Klan or whatever, perform terroristic acts even to the point because DAs remind us that they are law enforcement district attorneys, that officers would help those folks do what they needed to do or turn the blind eye to things like public lynchings. And then you had district attorneys that wouldn't prosecute people who committed violent acts toward black people. So we've talked about policy and we've talked about force. One other powerful tool to subjugate people is to ignore them, ignore their needs, ignore their concerns, ignore their voices. When Plessy versus Ferguson ruled that in 1896 that America was separate but equal, right? That there was no way that any government, any private business would double their capacity. Because if you wanted to have a black school equal to a white school, that means that you had to have double the resources to make sure that each school had the same thing if you wanted to have a bus or a train car for black people, equal to white buses, white only passengers on buses in train cars, then that means that you would have to double the fleet of the public transportation, or you would have to lengthen trains to have these luxury cars. And you would have to have Pullman porters in those cars, just like you would in the white cars. There was no way financially that America would ever live up to that legal president of separate but equal. So what happened, white schools got the resources. Black schools did not, but as long as there was a black school for the black kids, then they met the threshold. There was a school for black children. There was a section on the bus or the train for black people to sit in. There was a water fountain for black folks. There was a bathroom for black folks. black people could set up business districts. Although if they got too successful, white folks found a way to destroy it. And people say things have changed, but then we look at Jackson, Mississippi. Years of corruption and neglect has led to a situation where a majority black city, the largest city in the state of Mississippi, the capital city of the state of Mississippi, those residents don't have drinking water. Flint, Michigan, years later, are still dealing with the results. Of contaminated drinking water. And so when you hear people make these arguments, right? Well, I don't want my tax dollars helping out somebody other than me. That's what they mean. If you live in a suburb of Jackson, or you live in a suburb of Atlanta, or you live in a suburb, of any major city in the United States, and you espouse an economic fiscal policy position, that my tax dollars should not be going to the major cities that I surround, but yet I work in, I go to restaurants, and I go to the movies. Well, they try to take all the movies out of the cities, but that's a whole nother conversation. I want my money strictly for my community. I don't want to assist them. That's what that means. That's neglect. There were people in the states that paid income tax during the Civil War where not a battle was fought. Were there protesters of that? I'm sure there were. But they paid it. The only state where World War II was affected by violence wasn't even a state yet. That was Hawaii. but everybody contributed and bought war bonds, made sacrifices to support the war effort in Europe and in the Pacific. So Americans have shown a propensity that even though it didn't impact them immediately, especially white Americans, they felt it was a good cause To give money without much protest. But when you say something like, I want to forgive a student debt, or I want to target infrastructure money, or We should desegregate the schools. Then we have problems. We don't want to teach history to certain children. And it works two ways, right? So you don't want to teach history to black children So they understand really what happened in this country up until now. So they won't have feelings or animosity toward others, supposedly your argument. And then you don't want to teach history to white children because you don't want them to feel bad about themselves and their ancestors. And my relationship to that argument is when I first saw Roots, and I don't know if I've told the story in this podcast or not, I've told other people, especially in groups when we were dealing with racial reconciliation and all that, that after I watched that series on Roots on television, My mom specifically asked me, specifically asked me, how did I feel about white people? And my immediate response was I hate them because of what they did to us. And it was incumbent upon my mom and my dad to explain how things have changed, how America has evolved. And even though there are still challenges, and that education didn't start and stop that night. It went on all through my life until my mom left us. Um, When I say left us, when she died. (sighs) that America is not what it was. It's better. And it could be even greater if we continue to push the envelope of progress. So what is telling me that is that these people who are making these decisions that You shouldn't have this history taught is that they are terrible parents, that they don't have the capacity to explain to their children the difference between past, present and future. that They don't have the temerity or the gumption to talk to their children about what America really is, what it can be and what it should be. They want whatever programming is acceptable so that they can stay in their place. And I don't want to believe that American parents are that apathetic. I don't believe that. There may be some, but I don't think it's the overwhelming majority. And so I think that it is not up to a government to tell a school district, despite the tax dollars that are spent, that they cannot impart total knowledge to children. Now it's not critical race theory. We've already talked about that. That's a law school class. They're not going to teach law school classes at elementary schools. We've already covered that. But to say that slavery either didn't exist or was not the main reason for the Civil War, that's a lie. And that's a disservice to the children of America to perpetuate the lie. To counter the 1619 Project with the 1776 Project, as if the conditions of black people was way better in 1776 as opposed to 1619, okay. But you wanna put up this fallacy, right? And that goes all the way back to the speech that was given and I'll get on that. But I wanna finish this point about policy, power, or force, interchangeable, and neglect. If you control policy, if you control force, if you control the ability to neglect, which is a true definition of power, right? You control all that. not to mention the financial resources to prop all that up it's obla it's it's going to happen in human nature that there are forces that will rebel against that and so if you have the power of policy if you have the power of force if you have the power Of compassion and the financial resources to do that, then our hope is that you're egalitarian about it and that you're fair about it and that you're equitable about it and that you are not greedy with it. But in America, that's where we are the people that have that are greedy. Not so much the sense that they could get more, but the fact that they don't want anybody else to have access to it. And that puts us in this precarious state. And so now as people who, through lawsuits and political action, And even to some point, finance have broken through a lot of those barriers. The doubling down is what we're seeing. I've mentioned this many times before in this podcast. This is the last stand. If white supremacy does not win this time, it's over with. It's done if they cannot stop, whether it's Black Lives Matter or uh, La Raza or any other group, indigenous people, it doesn't matter. LGBTQ, it doesn't matter. Anything that doesn't comport to that ideology of supremacy, They can't crush it this time. They know it's over. And so Donald Trump shows up. When you look at it, the perfect foil, his personality, his access to money, everything perfect tool to lead that fight, or at least to be the face of it, because the real leaders do more manipulating than they do being out front. And if the American people are more concerned about how Joe Biden looked, what the image was about, oh my God, Marines were actually standing behind the president of the United States. Really? That's what we're concerned? We're concerned about the lighting on the Independence Hall? That's what we're upset about? Not the context of the fact that the president of the United States feels as though that we have reached an inflection point where we have to make a decision Do we let white supremacy win or do we finally defeat it? And the fact that a white guy is saying that. We're more concerned about staging and effects. If Joe Biden stood on a little soapbox in the middle of a cornfield and gave that speech, would you feel more comfortable about it? Would you pay attention to what he said? Or would you be upset that he was in a cornfield standing on a soapbox? That didn't look presidential enough. Stop finding excuses to confront white supremacy. Stop. Stop finding excuses to fight the battle of our generation, of our time. Stop. People in a major city don't have drinking water because of white supremacy. People are living in substandard conditions because of white supremacy. People are being denied opportunities for jobs and education because of white supremacy. People are being denied advancing in their jobs and education because of white supremacy. I don't give a damn where Joe Biden gave the speech at. It's time to address it. It's the time to address the herd of elephants in the room. The most presidential thing that he could have done was to stand before the United States of America and say to America, White people who believe in white supremacy are wrong. And this election will determine that. Because if you elect people who want to continue to prop up the face of white supremacy, if you want and the lie of white supremacy, you want that to happen. Or if you don't want it to happen, you need to vote. It's just that simple. And it's not my fault that the majority of people in one party have latched on to that idea. It is a fact. And so since the battle lines have been defined that way, then let it commence and let it commence on November the 8th, 2022. And hopefully let that be a major blow towards the end of white supremacy in America. Maybe that's altruistic, maybe that's hyperbolic, I don't know. But I do know that as somebody who has getting up in age now, somebody who's dealt with this on the front line. I'm tired of it impacting my life. I'm tired of it impacting my child's life. And I'm, I'm damn don't want it to impact my grandchildren's life. I'm just tired of it. And so what the president was asking I've already made my decision. I'm going to fight it. What I am hoping and what I am praying for is that the majority of America joins me instead of the other side. Until next time.